Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Josh Hodges. I'm the host of Online with an Architect. Uh, very happy to have uh, Joshua Steinhouse, Stenhouse sorry, with me today. Uh, welcome, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, another Josh talking to a Josh. That's uh, the first time on this podcast, let, so this will, be, this will be a bit of fun. Let's switch. I'm going to call you Hodges. You call me Stenhouse, then we're good. <laughs> that works. Cool. All right, so today we're going to talk a bit about, about ransomware and recovery and business continuity and, and we'll see where it goes. But uh, maybe a bit of uh, an introduction from you on, on where you're at and, and what you've done over the last few years and we'll go from there. Sure. So uh, I'd say today I'm, I'm the field CTO for Cyber Resilience at Rubrik and my job is uh, I work with our ransomware response team. We've responded now to date to over 150 major incidents and I get to come in and look at, okay, what are the lessons learned? Where was the majority of the time lost? And then what do we need to factor into the roadmap, the, the product? And also just what I recommend to customers and prospects is to, hey, this is the reality of the situation that you're going to face and, and what you need to prepare, prepare for. Yeah, very cool. So, yeah, in that response team, I, I guess that can be a pretty stressful situation. Um, customers are, are in a bad spot and you've got to try and help them out. So how do you handle that day today? Well, so important nuance here. I'm very particular in my wordage that I work with that team, not on that team, because <laughs> I, I do value my weekend. And yeah. I can tell you that uh, the 95% of all calls are going to be on a Friday night, Saturday morning. Mm. So... I purely open up my email and I say, okay, who's the latest uh, person to be hit? I give them a couple of days because it's a sensitive time. I've got mm. to let them at least get their critical services back online. And then I just start like prodding around and, and speaking. And, and then usually it's about a couple of months after where I'll come in and now the dust has settled. And then I'll mm. speak to the appropriate individuals and say, okay, what do you wish you knew? And then work backwards from there. But also going to be very particular in that you can't just jump straight in and say, okay, who is it? Because, you know, there's a lot of legal implications and people aren't willing to disclose absolutely everything. So mm. I always have to be very careful and, and nuanced in, in what I ask. And if I can get somebody out for a beer that has been for a ransomware attack, that's usually where I learn the most. Well, I think they deserve a beer after a ransomware attack in fairness. So they, uh, they, they, they good, do good and they usually good. accept it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I've certainly been involved in, in a few situations like that um, and just critical situations in general. And I think what I've seen mostly in my career, and obviously ransomware is not new, but it's it's really sort of ramped in recent years for sure. Uh, but what I find in these critical situations is it's just chaos and panic and, you know, no one really knows where to start. Uh, and I always find yeah. that really interesting that uh, in those situations you, you come in and there's 15 different opinions and no one's really taken the lead. So how do you guys manage that at, at Rubrik or just you in general? How do you manage those situations to restore a bit of order uh, in those chaotic situations? No, it, it, it's tricky. You can you can give somebody the tools, but they, they might not even use them. And I have seen instances where organizations have said, hey, we can pay the ransom. For example, it, mm. it's covered within our insurance. And then they've paid the ransom and seen that these tools are not optimized for decryption, only encryption. Mm. And then thought, hang on, this isn't going to work. We're not going to get back online fast enough. And then said, okay, what other options do we have on the table? But it, it is a big problem that, you know, 
a lot of organizations either aren't prepared at all, mm-hmm. or even if they try and be prepared, they don't actually enact their technologies into their plans and then and then discuss that with legal in advance. And, and of, of course, as soon as you're attacked, legal get involved. And all of a sudden, people just down tools and say, well, I can't touch anything because legal said I couldn't do anything. Mm. And so you'll, you'll see organizations out there where, for example, they'll have immutable backups, but the backup team sat there saying, well, I can't click to recover anything because I've been told I'm not allowed to touch anything on, on this network. And, it, and it's purely because they just don't have the documented processes of, okay, maybe you can't touch that production server that's a crime scene, but you do have a, a offline immutable backup that you could start to drive a recovery from for a different environment, but they're, they're just too afraid to even click the button. Mm. Yeah, I think you touched on a, on a hot topic there on, on how do you recover and where. So if you have literally got a crime scene on your hands and you're not supposed to touch it, where do you recover to? And I've certainly seen this and heard this quite a lot. Um, and uh, I don't know what your opinion is, but I think these hypervisor solutions on the hyperscalers, um, your VMC and AWS, your, your AVS, your GCBE, all these type of things, I think they're a great option uh, for ransomware. It's like, damn, I've got my data, yeah. my data center or my cloud is compromised. Where the hell do I restore my stuff? And and those you can stand up quite quickly. Um, you know, it's obviously it's not a magic wand, but at least you've got an environment which is net new, it's safe, you know that environment's not compromised and you have an option um, on somewhere to, to restore your data. Yeah, I think it, you know, they, they recently done a rebranding exercises on AVS and, and VMC. And I actually think it's justified in that previously I always struggled with the value proposition of why would I put a hypervisor on top of a hypervisor? Hmm. And now it's actually a really strong use case because the, the dirty secret is that you know, in 60% of ransomware attacks in the last 12 months, the attack was actually performed at the hypervisor layer. At the when I say layer, hypervisor, I'm, I'm being very polite. What I actually mean is the ESXi host. Hmm. So I haven't seen this Hyper-V. I haven't seen this AHV. I'm saying if you are running VMware, 60% of attacks, they're going to encrypt you from the hypervisor. And that means all of these organizations investing in their fancy EDR, your endpoint protection, Attacker just goes straight to the ESXi host, all the VMs down, encrypted extremely fast. And so then if you consider that your hypervisor itself is completely compromisable, then how do you get the same hypervisor so you don't have to do any conversion running mm-hmm. somewhere where it can't be compromised? And lo and behold, that is VMC and AVS, that you can't access the ESXi host shell. You can't do the same level of compromise. So it is actually a good rebrand and a good use case where now I can say, you know what, that is a really strong reason to consider it. And just this day, I had two conversations where I recommended AVS exactly for that. And mm. the way I'm positioning it is an isolated recovery environment, that it is completely physically isolated, no tie to your AD, no tie to your on-premise VMware. And I'm just going to put rubric in your data center, pump it through to rubric running in your cloud, and then... If you need it, we'll do a data pump into your AVS, your VMC, whatever you want. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that isolated environment is is key because even if you have your data center compromised and you have a, a separate environment within the same data center, there's going to be some form of connectivity or shared authentication or something like that, which you could be potentially compromised as well. So I think that isolation is key. And even having the process and procedure that you alluded to earlier, to stand up a new environment in an AVS or a GCVE, 
and then to restore to it so that it's literally net new um, after the attack so that there's no way it could have been compromised prior. Yeah. And, you know, don't get me wrong. If you want to build an on-premise IRE, I'll say, hey, great. Here are their recommendations. Standalone AD, standalone yes. physical switch. And you can even dual home a rubric cluster and have one side on prod and one side into your IRE. Go nuts. But the big problem is going to be, okay, let's say you have to actually use it, then how are you going to scale that? Hmm. And, you, you know, it's not like you're going to get a 100 terabyte or 500 terabyte production storage array tomorrow. You're not. So, all right, factor that into your recovery time objective, communicate that to your board, and then all of a sudden you'll realize that there is no way you're getting back online in 24 hours if you don't even have an array to recover to. And that's where using the cloud obviously makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, you've, again, you've touched on a key point here is the recovery time objective and the recovery point objective might be defined as, as a day or eight hours or whatever the amount of time is. But unless companies work backwards from that time and work out how they're going to actually get there, usually it's just a number someone's written down. Everyone's agreed that that's what they think they can do, but it's not validated. It's not tested. Um, and even if it is tested, a lot of the time it's it depends on the resource performing the test, whether it's successful or not. Uh, and obviously that's a massive risk for organizations that they have a potentially a single point of failure um, who can actually recover their environment. So I think, yeah, that planning the planning piece, sorry, uh, is so critical and is, is often, if not most of the time, uh, just non-existent. Yeah, I mean, and if you start to extrapolate out so if I'm saying that the majority of all attacks encrypt your VMs, then think about everything inside an enterprise environment. If that's running in a VM, then your tabletop exercise has to presume that's gone. Mm. So like, I have organizations where all their monitoring is running in a VM. Well, <laughs> your monitoring has gone. Your data classification tooling to find out what sensitive data is on that, that's gone too. It's all mm. gone. And then the other key thing that I see is anyone running Active Directory, it's pretty much everyone on premises, 100% of the time they get domain admin. Mm. If they got domain admin, what can you do with domain admin? Usually pretty much everything is gone. Absolutely. So separation of duties, different failure domains, all these things that you know people read about in reference architectures, best practice guides, whatever, that most people still ignore to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, each one of these steps just makes it harder and harder and harder for these attackers to compromise your entire environment. They might get a small piece or even potentially a large piece, but you want to try and minimize that attack surface. So what are you sort of seeing um, in your world at the moment in terms of attack surfaces? Are entire environments getting compromised or is it just subsets? No, in, in, entire environments, big bang. Hmm. And especially since the switch to the hypervisor-based encryption, that it, this is not, you know, prolonged attacks where the attacker is encrypting your environment over a long period of time. Maybe five, ten years ago, yes, but mm. not anymore. Because if I'm gradually encrypting your environment, then you can stop me in halfway through, and I'm you're, I'm not going to get the same bang for my book. So typically, an entire environment now is encrypted in less than five hours, mm. and they're doing it when nobody is typically awake. So you're going to wake up and, it, and it's all gone. And what we see is the same as what Mandiant report in their M-trends that in North America, median dwell time, five days, the rest of world, nine days if there's exfiltration. Mm -hmm. But that continues to go down every year in that 
if the, that's with exfiltration of data, if there's no exfiltration, it's usually 24, 48 hours. They might not even wait for a weekend. They're just going to take absolutely everything that is at least VM-based. Everything else, they'll do a file-level encryption. And within five, five hours, that environment is on its knees. Everything's down. Everything's mm -hmm. encrypted. And then that's usually when the, the, the panic button is pressed. Yeah, and the other thing I've also heard a lot of is customer environments like the virtual environment gets compromised and even physical environments that weren't compromised because they're dependent on that virtual infrastructure, they're at least offline at minimum. So even if the data is not compromised or lost, that environment's offline. So you're not only talking about ransomware and data loss and all these issues, you're talking about extended periods of downtime in the best case uh, for your business critical apps. So it's not just if they've compromised it and you can't get it back or you have to pay a ransom or something. It's just the downtime itself is, is a massive disaster. Yeah. And, it, and it, even worse, if that server is still online, you have to be very suspicious as to why that's still online mm. because it's more than likely could be a candidate where they've installed a, a remote access tool and uh, it's uh, where they've got their persistence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of these attacks come from social engineering as well. It's like you get in, you compromise someone's laptop, an admin's laptop, something like that, uh, and then the laptop isn't you know, given any attention as part of that recovery. So the whole environment gets rebuilt and redeployed somewhere else, and then they connect that same laptop back uh, or that same privileged account, uh, and it happens again. So it's not just about the first attack, it's preventing subsequent attacks. Uh, which is yeah. you know not a trivial task and uh, i mean i don't want to chase ambulances uh we all know what's happening in las vegas right now but uh, anecdotal evidence is suggesting something similar there of just calling a help desk and saying hey i'm joe blog i found him on linkedin and and resetting account access that way but mm -hmm. this is a this is not a new problem i remember you know one of the last environments that i managed as a as an end user at a law firm in manchester england and I remember one um, pen test that we did, I failed and they failed me because they said that you have your job title on LinkedIn mm. as uh, IT infrastructure manager at this law firm. And at the time I was like, oh, what are these guys talking about? Give me a freaking break. And they said, no, because we can call any person in that law firm and say it's Josh from IT and get anything we want. And they were right then and they're just as right now. Mm. Yeah, certainly humans are the, the weak link in, in most things in life and, uh, and IT is no different. 100%. But uh, yeah, yeah uh, and for all intents and purposes, it sounds like that that's still being used today. And, you know, what, one interesting thing I, I've seen with these attackers, and I don't want to poke the bear too much, but there's a tendency to think that they're extremely sophisticated. Mm. And I see what they do in these environments. And I don't think they're as quite as smart as people think that they are. And they, they tend to treat them with a little bit too much respect because mm. I know what I'd do if I was in these environments and I would be much more devious. Mm. Like, for example, why do they typically not uh, only leave servers online that they have access to? If I was an attacker, I would encrypt my own back doors so that I'm dying for you to bring me back into that environment. And I wouldn't encrypt them all, but I'd certainly encrypt a couple of them. And mm. it's a good example of... Maybe I shouldn't say that on some podcast and poke the bear, but it's something that people <laughs> got to think about that you, you, you can't trust anything. And 
And it's one of the biggest mistakes that I see on all tabletop exercises in practicing recovering from ransomware is just saying, oh, we're going to recover yesterday or three days ago. Mm. And I'm just, my immediate response is there is no way on earth that any incident response team is going to let you just pick a recovery point from two days ago and hope mm. that that works. No way. Median dwell time, you've at least got to pick a point six days ago. But then the next problem is, if you treat every server as a, as a zombie that, that is in potential control of the attacker, then mm. that means you're going to have to rewind your entire environment six days ago. And then at that point, what's the cost of that data loss? Mm. It might actually be more than the ransom. So the, yeah. uh, like every day of my life, I spend the whole day talking to people, giving them these little pieces of advice saying, this is what you need to be thinking about. You've got to be able to find a zombie versus a victim what is the control of the attacker versus what was encrypted and a clean recovery point per server? Because if you can't decipher that, you can't recover anything. Mm. And if you do, you're just going to be in an endless loop of recovering. Like you say, they'll just reinfect and and have you down for even longer. So I think this is the, the mistake that's been made for a lot of years, even just with simple just backups. You know, back in the day, 20 years ago, just simply keeping, you know, another copy of your data somewhere. People can't define their recovery time and their recovery point objectives. Um, they'll, they'll give it a number, but they don't know how to actually achieve that. And they don't realize that if you've got a multi-terabyte you know, VM, it might take a certain amount of time to restore that VM. So you've got to factor in that as well. It's like, cool, we've now got a good copy of it somewhere. We've got somewhere safe to put it, but it still takes time to restore. These things are not instant. Uh, especially where you've lost your array or you're restoring to a new environment, just simply, you know, streaming that data back takes some time. And I find this is just the most common mistake I see probably is the restore time is not factored in to the recovery time objective. So, oh, cool, we've got our backups ready to go, hit restore. Oh, I thought we'd be online now. No, 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 you've just started. Like, <laughs> this is what I mean by planning. People don't think about all the steps involved to recover. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's going to get worse though. I mean, yeah. so you're saying they're not even factoring the time to recover the data. And I'm saying that they're not even factoring that you might recover that, pass it to an incident responder who then loads their tool, scans it and then says, no good. Give it's me the next right. one. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, see, you're actually going to have to do five, six, seven recoveries just for one server. And that is why you see organizations down for multiple weeks because they're just stuck in a loop. Yeah, that's right. Just finding that data that is not compromised is a challenge in itself. And that's that's going to take a significant amount of time and effort. So like you say, the mean time might be five or six days. So if you start with day six, well, you might have been compromised three, four, five days before that. Um, you might not be on the mean. You might be well worse. And uh, yeah, that recovery time blows out. And like you say as well, the, the cost of the ransom, you know, let's say the ransom's $20 million or some huge amount of money, but to a company that's worth billions, that'd be much quicker than, than trying to resolve the problem. The problem then is, do you trust these criminals if you pay them to actually give you your data back and not subsequently compromise you because they've got all this money out of you? So it's kind of a, it's a lose-lose situation. Uh, and I don't think there's one right answer, but it's certainly not good either way.
but it, it's not. And so that one of the big areas of my focus today is that I say the only way I can give you a shot of getting a 24-hour recovery time objective is giving you the fastest scan speed of a, of a clean recovery point. So mm. my biggest area of focus today is um, threat hunting inside offline VMs. So I'll so at Rubrik we'll take a backup of your AHV, your VMware, your um, Hyper-V VM. It doesn't matter. Also physical servers. We'll take all those backups. We have a, an immutable time series because most people have at least fourteen to thirty days of backups in the in the Rubrik data vault. Mm-hmm. And then what we do is we layer in a, a threat hunting capability. So we'll you feed in your indicators of compromise like a YAR rule or hashes. And then without you ever having to mount a single VM, so you don't need any hypervisor anywhere, we can actually scan through the backups in their offline state and say, hey, the attacker established their persistence on this server at this point, this one, this one, this one, this one, and give them a a clean recovery point per server. And then you only have to do one recovery versus Mm. 10, 20, however many. And that is my biggest area of focus today because... That in itself is huge, massively innovative and, and one of our biggest differentiators in the industry. But the next problem is, well, you still got to scan the files. And if you have to scan a file, like pure physics dictates, like think about a single virtual machine, single Windows operating system. I don't know, like ballpark, how many files do you think there are? Oh, thousands. <laughs> yeah. Thousands, a couple hundred thousand. Yeah. I should actually go and count. I don't know. I was asking, like, maybe you yeah. knew. But it, it, it's definitely like at least a couple hundred thousand in one, mm. on one virtual machine. So my biggest area of focus today is, okay, why do we even need to scan in the first place? Like, for example, if you're already backing up the data and indexing it, then why not index the hashes of the files? So that if somebody gives you a list of hashes... You don't have to scan the files. You've already got an index. Mm. So that, that's my biggest area of focus today is just reducing that down so that that isn't an issue. I don't have to scan every file in your environment to find an indicator in a malware. Mm. I can do that in seconds. And then the only problem you've got is, as you say, the actual RTO and the data. Because that that is a huge problem if you have to do it 10 times. My job is to make sure you only have to do it once. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would save a, a ton of time, uh, no doubt at all. Um, another problem I, I see as well, and that sounds like a great feature, by the way. I wasn't aware of that, so that, that's very cool. I'll have to look into that. I don't know. Um, we'll probably to, get fired we'll, for saying that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk offline. Um, but, uh, you know, no uh, NDA breaches here, please. Um, so nah. we'll, have to, we'll have to mute you out or bleep you out. But uh, so defining your, your RPOs and your RTOs on your workloads, this is another area where... I find VMs get classified in like gold, silver, bronze, that that traditional sort of three-level approach. But then I see spreadsheets where you've got a gold tab, a silver tab, and a bronze tab. You've got all these VMs listed. And then in another column, you've got separate RPOs and RTOs listed under the same gold, silver, bronze. So really, gold, silver, bronze is redundant. It's just a list of VMs with all these random different RPOs and RTOs. And that's bad enough because obviously when you've just got a a random sprawl of requirements, it's very difficult to comply uh, and validate. Um, But then the interoperability between those things, you might have a database server, which is considered business critical, which has got all these recovery points, but then the application that uses it 
is completely out of sync with it. So when you restore the latest version, you, you don't know the state at which both are at. So what, what do you guys see um, typically in the industry at the moment that I guess even before you get compromised, just defining these things is a huge area of uh, a huge mistake I see quite often. Ah, nothing new under the sun. That's an age-old problem. Mm. Uh, if, you, if you want to see any customer squirm, just say, oh, like, tell me your uh, tiers of applications and RTO for each tier. And they're like, oh, we're working on that. I mean, yes. same question 10 years ago, you got the same answer. And, you know, like, prior to, to Rubrik, I worked at Zerto, and that was very much in that area of disaster recovery and, and tiering mm. applications. And all I can say is that Organizations were struggling with this 10 years ago, and this was just for DR. Mm. And DR, oh my God, is the easiest exercise ever in comparison. You're saying everything's down in A, and I need to get everything running in B. That's it. Mm. That is easy in comparison to a ransomware attack where you can't trust anything. Mm. And furthermore, it's not even about the tiering of the applications. It's about what are the, not even the interdependencies between the applications, but the interdependencies with the infrastructure itself. Because, you know, you think over the last 10 years, everyone's like, oh, you, you got to switch to Active Directory um, service group accounts or GPMAs, I don't know, whatever they call them these days. And I'm like, hang on. So you're saying that every single server in your environment is completely reliant on AD. And if AD is down and compromised, no single database service in your environment can start. And they're like, yeah, that, that, that's secure. <laughs> no, it's actually completely the opposite. You've, you've built a single point of failure and that now, if it's reliant on AD, you have to presume that it's gone down. Mm. So my key recommendation for everyone is, okay, yes, you've got to build tiers of your applications and you've, you've got to at least have some prioritization because you're not going to be able to recover everything in 24 hours. Mm. But if you at least say, look, these are the 10 apps that everybody needs or drives the majority of our revenue. These are the other 10 apps or databases that they're all reliant on. So now I'm at about 20 and these all need AD. Then AD first and DNS and DHCP, whatever associated services, these 20 apps, this is the most important thing in the first X hours everything else, turn it off. Hmm. And make that group as small as possible as well so that you've actually got a chance. You know, the bigger that group becomes, the, the complexity and the time, it just goes out of the water. Yeah. To, to, and and the, the reason that specifically I say turn it off is because the other thing I see attackers do is that they don't establish persistence on your production tier one servers and say, hey, come look at me, come find me. They go to the periphery. You, know, you think it, like, everybody has that IT dumping ground server. Mm. That's where they go. Yeah, the jump they go boxes straight and all that kind of stuff. The jump boxes, the periphery services, the servers that no one's really looking at. And I've seen it. You go on there and they have, they, buddy, they have a text file on the desktop that lays out their attack plan. It's crazy, right? Because they know it, you're not looking. Yeah, Everyone looks at the business critical stuff and, and ignores where the actual attacks coming in. I think the uh, the old saying was security by obscurity, um, mm. and uh, it, it's true, right? It's just it's an obscure attack that you wouldn't think of, so therefore it, it gets left dormant, uh, running in the background, and the problem just gets worse and worse. Yeah, 
And and also the, the the attackers are very well versed in what to look for. They they have manuals that they share, which is always a big frustration for me. I, I mean, I don't know if this is the same in your part of the world, but in North America, it really drives me crazy that we don't share lessons learned. Everyone just shuts down. Mm. Whereas the attackers learn, the attackers share, they have manuals. They get on a network. They know how to find what backup software you're using. Mm. They know to go straight. I mean, straight away, if your backup software is running Windows, they'll go straight to that Windows server. Because one, they know that you've got one Windows server in your environment that is domain join that can communicate with every critical piece of infrastructure. And furthermore, depending on what backup software you're using, they more than likely can just decrypt half the credentials straight from the SQL database. Mm. It's an absolute honeypot of every critical piece of information that I need as an attacker. And that's the perfect place for also for me to launch the attack. And I've seen it. 20, 30, 40 times now. And in environments where even if they're standardized on rubric, they didn't turn off the old stuff and that's where they go. Mm. Interesting. And I mean, that's quite common as well. Like regardless of what vendors you use, a lot of the time they have a legacy software and then they have a new one. Um, So like you say, they could just go to the old copies and that might be a compliance archiving situation, um, but that's their their way in. So got to be very careful with these you know, even your out-of-date software that you're maintaining for whatever legal, usually it's a legal reason, compliance reason, you've got to give that the same focus as your primary technologies. Uh, otherwise, yeah, ransomware is yeah. going to get it. Um, yeah. And like and, you say, it might and, just be a jump-off point or you might lose your archive and your compliance and then you get subpoenaed or something to show some evidence, you don't have it, and then obviously there's consequences for failure to uh, retain compliance. So... Yeah, pretty uh, good lesson it's learned. Usually, it's usually the it's usually the jump off point, mm. and not it's not where they enter, but it's where they go, because mm. there's many different ways. And there has been a big a big shift in the last year that the majority of um, I'd say access to an environment has has been through zero day vulnerabilities, which mm. is a big shift. But you know, there's many prominent examples where people say, "Well, all you need is MFA." No, you don't. Your example, if I compromise your IT admin's own laptop mm. and he VPNs in and by, and authenticates via MFA, bang, I'm on your network. You're done. Mm. MFA exactly. does nothing. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like you do all these things to make yourself less attractive as a target or more difficult as a target, but it doesn't stop it. It's like I think anyone who thinks you can really stop these things entirely is, is probably a little ignorant. Um but you want to make yourself a very unattractive target. And basically, the less attractive you are, the attacker is going to go to someone else, get that low-hanging fruit, and it's going to become, unfortunately, someone else's problem. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, what I was going to say about lessons learned, I agree this is something very frustrating, and it's, it's a global problem, um, whether it comes from human nature being competitive and things like that or not, I don't know. But partners, you know... You've got experience, I've got experience, and, you know, some of us in the community we share with each other, we're sharing our experiences right now, obviously, on the podcast, but it's very uncommon for people at different companies to share their experiences, and I think this is a huge problem Um, and something that that I'm trying to, you know, do my part, my very small part to resolve, which is provide services to other partners. So it might be a VMware partner, 
if they don't have the skills to do a certain piece, I'm happy to come in and do work, you know, for that partner and help them, you know, deliver a great outcome. And at the same time, you know, end to end have an alliance with Comdivision for that exact reason. It's we want to join forces. We want to share lessons learned. We want to the rising tide lifts all boats or whatever the old saying is. That's the whole point of that alliance is that we all get better together and provide a better outcome. And I think ransomware is one of these places where it doesn't make any sense for us to keep that experience to ourselves. We want to make it so difficult for these ransomware people that it, the market shrinks. Now, I think that's probably unrealistic. I think they're just going to keep improving and, and keep going. But, you know, you've got to fight back at some point. So fingers crossed, you know, this podcast yeah. and, and other things we'll do together will we'll help that. Well, we'll keep trying, although in the last week, I think somebody just paid a $30 million ransom. So that's a, a hell of a way to incentivize. And, you know, you know, quite honestly, if I was living in that part of the world and I could buy an access list for a couple hundred dollars and I could sit with complete impunity and just take a swing mm. at, a, at an organization that I know cannot come after me in any way. If I was based in Canada, no. <laughs> like you're, you're going to have someone knocking on your door. But if I was based in uh, the opposite side of the world, then yeah, why not? Like you could just like RDP in, encrypt some systems and potentially get a $30 million payday via Bitcoin. And with like absolutely zero consequence, it's mm. no wonder that they do it, but we're still susceptible to it because we're not sharing the lessons learned. Mm. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, obviously there's companies, I mean, Rubrik's in this business, right? So they don't want to lose their intellectual property. They want to grow their, their value as a company and all these things. But at the same time, you can share uh, what the problem is conceptually um, and the solution, what it is conceptually. And then each of the different vendors can compete on how they execute on that concept. Uh, I don't see a, a real problem with that. But at the end of the day, like I said, I think it's human nature. We're all very competitive. You know, we want to win, we yeah. want to make money and grow companies and things like this. So, yeah, we're kind of giving the ransomware people a, a leg up in the fight uh, by not sharing information. So, yeah, I feel like... We are, yeah. but, uh, you know, I, I like where you're going because I'm going to bite on that because I, I do have a very big problem today and LinkedIn is a, a huge source of frustration with for me mm. is that I, I find a lot of vendors chasing the ambulance without the actual technical or security chops to be able to back that up. Mm. And, and, and I take extreme offense to that coming from the background that I have where, Hey, I started as like the, the AD guy, MCSE windows 2000 mm. back in the day when it was really freaking hard. Yeah. And then <laughs> I went to virtualization. And so like the two things that I can tell you, I know pretty well, like actual grounded technology of, of VMware and AD. Hmm. And all right, maybe five years ago, I was starting to feel a little bit old and thinking, oh, everything's going cloud. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my time here. And then lo and behold, it's come back around where now everyone's concerned about cloud. And actually the number one attack vector is on-premises AD and VMware virtualization. Hmm. So now I feel like it's come back full circle. And what I see is a lot of these vendors saying, hey, I, I can give you ransomware recovery. I can protect you and recover you from ransomware attack. And when you actually peel back and look under the covers, you're like, so hang on, what, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm going to give you an installer 
an executable and you're going to give me a VM and then I'm going to give you ransomware cover. I'm like, hold on, hang on, hang on, hang on. stop, stop, stop. You, you fundamentally cannot withstand the actual attack itself. So if you're actually telling your customers and prospects that you can help them in their time of need when you can't actually withstand the attack, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's borderline criminal in my opinion. That, mm. and, I think IT and so, as an industry in general has that problem. I think there's a lot of over-promising and under-delivering um, and you know, smoke and mirrors sort of marketing you know, the, the one that I, I don't like is the deduplication. You know, people call like thin provisioning deduplication. They, they call, you know, not writing zeros deduplication. Like all this stuff, it's is it dedupe, is it not? You know, are you getting 10? I wrote a, a blog years ago on, on a vendor that's uh, insignificant these days, obviously, but, you know, and they were promising like 10 to 1 and it wasn't dedupe at all. Like... You didn't need to achieve any deduplication <laughs> to achieve the ratio if you're just taking a whole bunch of snapshots, which, of course, snapshots are not deduplication either. So I think the market, uh, you know, needs to hold itself a little bit accountable to when you're marketing your value prop, you know, it's got to be at least mostly factual. Obviously, sales, we talk things up a little bit, right? And I don't have a problem with talking something up or championing it or being an evangelist or whatever, but where it's not accurate, that's... I think where we share the same opinion, it's it's borderline criminal to sell something to someone, promising an outcome, and that outcome not be delivered. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's, it's just false advertising, which is you know which is not legal in most countries. So yeah, it's, I I actually want somebody to buy one of these solutions, get compromised, and then legally come back at them and say you promised me this, and you physically couldn't withstand it, and it and it. You know, some some people um, consider it fortuitous at, at Rubric the the way that the market panned, but I actually consider it that we we made the right choices at the right time. And and I'll give you an example. When I first started at Rubric, and at the time we were saying, "Hey, we're cloud data management." So this was 2017, mm. and uh, so I got my first Rubric appliance, this honking great two U server. It was like super micro, <laughs> just like a new Nutanix block at the time, yeah. And my, I had this, like, heaving it in the house. And my wife said, that's a funny-looking cloud. <laughs> she was right. It's like, it wasn't really cloud data management at all. But, you know, even though there was a couple of years there where it was considered a little bit backwards to have, like, your software running on a physical appliance, it's actually mm -hmm. come full circle now, where that's the only way that I can guarantee that I'm going to give you a survivable copy of the data because it's not running in your hypervisor. It's not running Windows. It's secure hardened Linux. It's its own physical server, its own software stack on top of it. And so now what was originally conceived was one of the, the biggest downfalls and downsides against Rubrik is actually the, the, the biggest benefit and reason why is that mm. it's survivable. But I also want to go back and touch on, I remember like early days at Rubrik, one of the biggest problems that we had in 20. 17, 18, 19 was the traditional backup vendors all saying, well, we have better dedupe. Mm. And so we both had dedupe problems. But the, my, my story is always that uh, the legacy vendors would say, well, my dedupe is 150 to 1. Mm. I'm like, whoa, hang on. Whoa, whoa, what on earth are you talking about here? And so I actually did the math and sat down and worked out what they were doing. And what they were actually saying is that if every backup is a full 
and I only store the first full mm. minus compression and then the changes, mm. then I can say, well, I'm 150 to one. Mm. So I, I, mean, I remember at the time, infinite I, to one, right? Because if you just keep the first one, a couple of delta changes, kind of an infinite to one, but it, it's not real. No one does, or I shouldn't say no one, very few, if any people do full backups every single day in the traditional sense that they might do a, yeah. a virtual full, right? Or an incremental forever, or there's all the different terms out there. Um, um, synthetic fulls, all the vendors have different names now, but no one does it. So calling it a deduped copy is, is a little bit misleading. You could just yeah. say it's efficiently I mean, they, stored, and that's true, but it's not dedupe. Yeah, the, the good news I've seen, in, in certainly in the backup industry, is that it everybody accepts that everyone's within around 10% of each other. It's kind of table stakes at this point. Hmm. And maybe I'm just shielded from it because people don't bring me to talk to people about that these days. But yeah. uh, uh, I don't see it as much of an issue, and, and thankfully that's gone by the wayside. Yeah, I think so. I think most, yeah, like you say, most vendors, you compare all the solutions. If you did a, a genuine like-for-like -like comparison between all the storage and backup vendors, it, it's going to be very similar efficiency levels. It's certainly not a, a major differentiator anymore. Um, in the early days, I think NetApp was probably the leader at one point in data efficiency. Um, and then, you know, everyone else sort of piled on similar capabilities and eventually you know, years ago now, I think it was table stakes. So, yeah, I don't really hear about it much anymore. Uh, my customers right. certainly not, are not interested in it anyway. So uh, so it's not just me then. That, that's good. I, I do remember a, a funny story when I, I did a brief stint in the channel as a reseller, like a sales engineer, and yeah. um, uh, I was working with a partner that was selling NetApp. And they were talking about how great the dedupe was, et cetera. And I remember the sales guy telling a customer, oh, you, you can keep snapshots for 10 years. <laughs> Just like, hold up, hang on. This, this, this array isn't even going to last 10 years. What do you mean yeah. keep a snapshot for 10 years? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, is, is what you can theoretically do versus what you should or maybe want to do are usually worlds apart. So, yeah, it's, it's the marketing versus reality mm -hmm. Uh, that I like to help customers navigate, which is, you know, on a marketing slide, it says product A has feature ABC and product B has the same three features, but are they designed the same? Are they scalable in the same way? Are they enterprise grade? Are they resilient, performant and all these other factors? And usually the tick box comparison is a very disingenuous way to compare products. Uh, so I, I don't like them at all. I wrote a blog years ago about it, actually, that it's just, it's kind of lying to customers, you know, oh, we have that feature, but you don't tell them that it doesn't work or it doesn't scale, or it only works for certain use cases. And by the time you go down that list of caveats, you're not going to use it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I call it checkbox Olympics and oh, that's a good I, one. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Steal it. It's yours. And I, I hate it because on paper, everybody can say I can do everything. Mm. And I'm always a big, big, big advocate for you. You got to test it and you got to hold them to the world, the word, mm. because, okay, some tests might be a little redundant because of course, like in the world of backup, everyone can back up, everyone mm. can recover. But I, I, I'm saying the meaty tests, mm. like I want you to take that HCI environment. And I mm. want you to pull the power on it. And yeah. you'll like this one. I want you to pull the power plug. I want you to put the power plug back in. 
I want you to turn it back on and I want you to tell me what happens. Mm. That is where you're going to really see the difference. Mm. And that is a real world scenario. And so I, I always advocate test, but you got to test the, the big use cases, not the minutia. People mm. love to test minutia. Like, oh, they did this. Like they could power on a VM. Well, of course you could freaking power on a VM. Power mm. on a VM. Of course, you can back up and recover this. Like you, you got to test the really important use cases that are going to make the difference, especially in a ransomware attack, because that's usually where you're going to find out that that marketing checkbox mm. is just a checkbox. And a, a very common example in the backup space these days is people say, oh, I can do threat hunting. I can mm. scan your backups. But what they're actually doing is saying, well, if you install this software in a VM, that VM can scan your backups. And again, well, that VM's gone. So you can't scan anything. So you, you check the box, but it wasn't actually survivable from the attack. Mm-hmm. So your your box wasn't nuanced enough to catch out that you just tested something that you're actually, if you did the test in the right way, you would prove that you're not even going to be able to do that when you need it most. Mm. In the best case scenario, it may perform as mm-hmm. intended, but we're not talking about best case scenario. We're talking about, you know, the shit has hit the fan, right? Things are going very, very bad. How does it perform at that point? And your example about just pulling the power on servers, you know, I wrote a a test when I was back at Nutanix with their X-ray tool. And the idea was for HCI, it was, yeah, hard power off a host, power it back on, wait for a few minutes for it to show us online, move some VMs onto it, and then power off another server in the cluster. And then see how it performed, whether it, it continued to function or not, whether it performed efficiently, whether the rebuilds were happening or whether they were paused or they could resume or couldn't resume, whether you had, you know, data loss or whether you had um, IOs that were failing. Like there's a million criteria that that, or maybe not a million, but there's a lot of criteria that that test looks at, which are not your traditional just pull a drive or pull a server. It's what happens when a server has come back online, maybe not fully online, might be still rebuilding something, a little bit random, and then something else happens. That, that's what I like to see is that next layer down and the layer after that, which is exactly what you're referring to. Yeah. And, and Sod's Law, I mean, that's not actually that unrealistic. <laughs> if, if something bad happens on one, usually you bought all those servers at the same time and therefore it could also immediately happen on the next one too. Yeah, uh, the one I'm, I see is I'm sure like, every... yeah, bad batches of hardware. I mean, that happens all the time. But the other one <laughs> is like a data center, the air conditioning fails in a data center. And then the servers all sort of reach that critical level of temperature at the same time because they're in the same set of racks in the same area. And then one pops offline, you go, ah, well, I've lost one, doesn't matter, I've got N plus two. And then, oh, quickly another one pops. And then it's like, oh, the rebuild hasn't re- hasn't fully, recur- uh, fully occurred yet. So I can't actually tolerate another one. And then they all just go offline. Um, so, you know, those things can definitely happen. And that's just an example of needing to recover but recover data. <coughs> Excuse me. I think the, the, the lesson is test it, test it, test it. And not mm. the minutiae, the big use cases, the fringe that are going to catch you up. Mm, absolutely. And I think when you test these type of ransomware scenarios, you realize the complexity involved. And, you know, to your point earlier, just finding that point to recover is a, a massive task in itself, uh, which you've proposed there's a potential solution for that, which is great. But then the recovery itself is is where? Where are we recovering this environment? That's another challenge. 
Uh, and then assuming you've recovered it, then you might have to think about connectivity. Like, cool, we've recovered mm. to this isolated environment that you referred to earlier. Might be an AVS. Okay, cool. We've now recovered our environment. It's online. We believe it's it's not compromised. Now, how do we get our users access to it? So that it's not just even restoring the backup. It becomes then connectivity after that. Yeah. I mean, this is the exact conversation I had twice today of... Like I, I need, I'm trying to get people out of thinking about just recovering the data and saying, look, I can get you the data back. That's no problem. That's actually one of the easier parts. Hmm. The, the next problem you've got is, okay, how is anyone going to use this? Like, how do, your, how do your users connect to this environment today? Oh, they've got laptops. Okay. Do they VPN in? Yeah. So that VPN is connecting somewhere where the data and applications no longer live. So what's your plan if you have to fail over to this environment? Oh well, then we'll have to have a like a a new VPN, like a cyber isolated recovery VPN. Okay, well that would be a great thing to have in place in advance, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. No shit, Sherlock is my <laughs> now. I don't say that to a customer, but I'll say it to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's true. Like you've got to think. All right, each of the steps involved in the recovery in isolation may be simple planning them, timing them, making sure things are set up and tested in advance. Again, these are just common mistakes. And I think most mistakes mm. that are made are at that 101 level. We haven't even got to the really complex 201, 301 yet. We're really talking the conceptual 101 layer, which is where the attackers get in, they've compromised your environment, and you don't have the first steps in place and the first procedures validated to even begin a recovery. Uh, so I think... yeah. Those customers that are low-hanging fruit, the ones that we're hearing about in the news constantly, um, you know, the casino is obviously a great target because high-value organization can probably afford to pay a ransom. Uh, I'm sure they don't want to, but um, yeah, <laughs> I thought the same. Um, and I, I mean, I immediately thought of the movie Casino, and I thought, I don't know if I'd mess with those guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, actually, I don't know. The, the more I think about it, the more I think that it might actually be good to just take them to the end user. Hmm. That we're so focused on the business that hmm. maybe the best result uh, or way to get them thinking about it is, okay, let's say your user can't connect to your data center anymore hmm. and your user has to connect to this new isolated recovery environment. So let's start there. So let's get them a VPN to that environment. Okay, now what do we need to run in that environment? And maybe working from the user perspective of, mm. of people who consume the applications backwards might actually help organizations structure this in the right way. Because if you, if you start with IT, usually they can't make head nor tails of it. And they're mm. like, well, I don't know. So, all right, okay, who are your top X thousand users? What apps do they use? Where do they need to connect? And what do we need to get running there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good approach. It's just just make it as simple as possible for people to understand and say, all right, cool. The CEO, what does he do? First thing in the morning, right? He wants to log in, probably check his email. Ah, um, email, there you go. Yeah. That's it. Easy. Email <laughs> and Slack, done. Easy, easy, easy. I'm not concerned about the CEO. It's everyone yeah. else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, yeah, defining your users, what they need, and the prioritization of, of <clears throat> those workloads, excuse me. I think just those steps would put customers in a, a far better situation uh, than most of them are today. Um, so we're running a little short on time, but what I was thinking is we can cover off maybe the top five of your tips 
uh, for organizations at a high level. And then in part two, uh, we can maybe go into a bit more depth on uh, on those top five or top ten, whichever, uh, however deep we want to go. Um, so maybe, yeah, kick off. What, what's the biggest mistake you see and, and what's the best mitigation oh, for it? Very high Ty- level. Top, all right, high level. So top five. So number one has to be you've got to have immutable backups. If you don't have immutable backups, you've got to presume you've got nothing. So number one. Number two is that you've got to also presume that the infrastructure around those backups is also going to be compromised. So you've actually got to have an immutable backup infrastructure, like backup, recovery, all the capabilities around it. If you can't do any of that, then you're not even going to have the interface. You're just going to be a headless chicken. So immutable backups, immutable backup infrastructure. The third tip is you cannot presume that you can just recover to yesterday. Hmm. So you have to then work out, okay, what is going to be my process to find that clean recovery point. Then the next one, number four, is going to be the elephant in the room, is you're also going to be, have to work out what sensitive data was on your network. If you don't already have a good handle on every piece of sensitive data on that network, then you're going to get found out very quickly in a ransomware attack because any of it could be stolen. Mm. Attacker is an encrypted backdoor or tunnel. They can siphon off anything at will. And then the last one is practice, practice, practice. You've got to have all of this drilled, documented, approved by your legal team that this is the process that you're going to follow. Because mm. if you don't have it approved by legal, you could practice it and they still say you can't touch anything. So you've all security, backup, legal. You're all going to have to work together in a ransomware attack. And if that's not part of your tabletop exercise, then that's a surefire way to fail. Mm, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And obviously, we're it's online with an architect. So if we talk architecture for a minute, we've got an enterprise architect who's managing potentially the legal side and all of that organizational piece working alongside or potentially might be the same person, the solution architecture piece, which is leading the technical side of the recovery. All those have to be lined up. You, you can't just have your sysadmin called into the room and say, you know, hey, hey, Bob, come and fix our environment. You're the sysadmin. You know, this is a, an organizational-wide um, exercise. Uh, and I think that's the other piece that's missing. It's not just an IT problem. Uh, it's like oh, you say, yeah. a legal on. team. It's the decision makers have to decide, you know, what risks they're willing to take uh, from both a, a before an attack in terms of mitigation and then after the attack in terms of the recovery process and procedure. So making sure the whole organization is aligned and practicing it and validating it, I think is is an obvious one. It's what we all don't do enough of, which is practice and, you know, repeat these processes. We need to make sure customers are doing that. Yeah, and, and cross-org. The, the, you, you're right. It, the, it's where they all fall down. They just think, oh, this is just an IT problem. No, mm-hmm. if, if it was, maybe you could solve it reasonably quickly, but it, the, if you're not also involving legal communications, mm-hmm. HR, then you're, you're not really going to experience the, the true impact and, and, and realize just how bad it's going to be. But also, IT are also, in my opinion, the worst at tabletop exercises because they're suckers for presumption. Mm-hmm. They'll do these tabletops and they will log into their AD domain. <laughs> like, whoa, hang on, hang on. Your AD is compromised. Your AD has just been turned off. I've just taken away your AD. What are you going to do now? Mm. And they're like, oh, I don't know. So like, 
IT can't work alone, but they're also probably the worst for presuming that services are going to be available when they're not. Mm. And I think that comes down to risk mitigation, documenting what your risks are, understanding the mitigation and the impact of those risks uh, so that we can also guide businesses on where they should invest in mitigation. Because uh, I think that's key yeah. as well is what risks are, you know, significant enough to invest a significant amount of, of money to mitigate. Um, obviously, ransomware is a massive topic, so it's, it's not simple, but, you know, working out to what level you're going to mitigate that risk um, and, you know, at what point you're going to accept that, okay, you know, we're not going to spend our entire annual revenue on mitigating ransomware, but at what percentage of our revenue are we going to invest in IT and, and that mitigation? Yeah, and usually a lot more than they should because I, I've never seen anyone go for a ransomware attack and reduce their IT spending. Mm. Usually it doubles. Mm. And that's always the lesson learned is that we should have spent more, mitigated more, because we didn't quite realize what would be the impact of just 48 hours of downtime. Mm. That in itself might have doubled the IT budget for security. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a multi-billion dollar company and you're down for a day, Divide multi-billion dollars by 365 and you've got a very big number um, and that's your impact. Um, assuming yeah. that the impact only goes for a day and you're not compromised beyond that with data loss, you know, it's a pretty simple bit of math to get a ballpark on what the impact's going to be and I think we've got to make sure people are aware of that. Um, sort of like yeah. insuring your car, you don't want to pay it, but we do. Yeah, and it's a huge element of what I do is just saying, look, this is your business impact analysis. I took the most simple calculation you could ever imagine what you just did, mm. which is still a good swing. It's better than nothing. Mm. And I'm telling you, if you're umming and ahhing about whether this is 20 grand a month mm. or 100 grand a month, and I'm saying that you could be down for two days and it'll cost you 20 million, then... You're obviously not looking at this the right way. And quite honestly, sometimes I might just be talking to the wrong person. I need mm. to go higher. That yeah, they're absolutely. not understanding the business implications of the choices that they're making. And if they if they did, then they wouldn't choose that. And also, yeah, sometimes I just need to make a better champion and say, you've got to surface it up and say, hey, this is the business impact analysis. This is the cost of downtime. Mm. This is the absolute best solution that we can implement an architect. This is what I recommend. But if you want to be cheap, here's the bronze. Mm. And I love that approach. And that's what I took when I was an end user, because then I thought, you know what? At that point, it's no longer on me. Mm. I told you the cost. I told you the impact. I gave you the solution. And if you don't go for it, that's on you. I just pushed it up the chain. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point and a great place to, to stop for part one. Uh, and I look forward to diving in uh, for part two. Uh, in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you, man.